0: Welcome to the Punk Rock NBA Podcast. What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty. This is the Punk Rock NBA Podcast. Today's guest is Kevin Jordan from This Wildlife. If you have not heard of This Wildlife, the way that they describe it, I think is pretty great. Calls it the Hot Topic Mumford and Sons, which is pretty accurate. They're an acoustic duo that plays music that is not unlike Mumford and Sons, but they are part of the kind of War Tour sort of scene. I think the music is pretty great, but the reason that I wanted to have them on the show is because they're just very smart about how they approach the band as a business. And that is what we talk about on this show. From their beginnings as just an unknown local duo like everybody else to recording their first album and getting signed by Epitaph, and now most recently deciding to leave Epitaph and go indie again. So we talk about why they did all those things and how they did them, as well as a bunch of nitty-gritty stuff like merch... And saving money on tours and all that kind of stuff. You know, I like to get into the nitty-gritty details, and we talk about all that stuff. Great conversation as always. Super happy to have him on the show. If you enjoyed this one, there's a few things that you can do to help us out. Number one, you can share the show on social media, whether that is Instagram or Facebook or Twitter or TikTok or Friendster or Orcut. We don't care. We appreciate all of it. Tag me, tag the guest, tag Deanna. The platforms don't really do a lot to help us spread the word about the show, so we really rely on you guys for that. Thank you very much to everyone who's been sharing it. Number two, if you want to buy some merch, that also helps. There's a link to that in the description. I just designed a bunch of stuff that I think is pretty cool. And number three, if you really, really want to support the show, then you can become a patron patrons get access to every episode a week early there's an opportunity to have me review your band or podcast or youtube channel or design portfolio or any other kind of project that you want to send my way if you want to hear what i think about it so if that sounds interesting there's a link to our patreon in the show notes as well and with that out of the way let's get into the episode good morning kevin welcome to the podcast How's it going, dude? This is where I put my podcast voice on. Good morning, Kevin. Welcome. Watch out for brake lights at the 405.
1: I do that in post-production. I pitch shift down, heavy compression, yeah. really dial in that that narrator voice, that God voice.
0: Slam that limiter, scoop out all the mids.
1: Like a metalcore guitar.
0: Exactly. Yeah, that's that's what I like. I mean, you can never really go wrong with scooped mids and a slammed limiter. I feel like that just makes, regardless of what source material you're doing with, you're working with, that always makes it sound better. Yeah. I'll give it a go. <laughs> At least that's what I think. I mean, I don't know.
1: <laughs> I don't know about acoustic guitars. We'll see.
0: You gotta limit the fuck out <laughs> of those things. If you if your waveform doesn't look like a square, you're doing something. Or a rectangle, you're doing something wrong with those acoustics.
1: Yeah. Use your eyes instead of your ears while recording. Them. I like that. It's a new one.
0: Exactly. This is that's my whole <laughs> thing. Like, why spend a bunch of money on fancy monitors when all you really need is the right spectrum analyzer? So you can just mix with your eyes. I love it. You just you just learned something. I just changed the game for you this morning. <laughs> cool. Well, I was doing some research this morning, and I thought it was pretty interesting the way you categorized uh, yourself. The hot topic: Mumford and Sons. I like that.
1: That came as a joke from uh, like our touring one of our touring members. From years ago, we were like literally setting up a stage. At, I think it was at Stubbs in Austin, and he was just kind of bagging on us, and, and came up with that slogan. And we loved it so much that now we've completely adopted it. It's in all the bios. It's <laughs> how we refer to ourselves on stage now. So I think it's pretty accurate.
0: It's funny, but it is accurate and it's actually great branding. Like with startups, you know, you always want to say like, oh, it's like Uber for X or it's like Spotify for Y and people instantly get it.
1: Oh, I've never thought of it that way. We always just find it to be like a funny joke to be part of banter on stage. It is funny. <laughs> but I've never thought of it as a pitch. But it's it's
0: <laughs> actually really good. Yeah. Like Siler's War- to her Limp Bizkit, you know?
1: That's your business mind working. I'm just a, I'm just a songwriting dummy. Yeah.
0: <laughs> we could talk about whatever you want because uh, you're you're a smart guy. But uh, I thought it might be interesting to talk about how you got signed and kind of the process of that because you know you guys are an Epitaph great label that everybody loves i think lots of people would love to be in your shoes and i thought that might be an interesting conversation so tell me how that happened i read your bio there uh, i don't want you to have to repeat yourself too much but tell me how you ended up getting on Epitaph's radar
1: uh the band started off as like what was supposed to be a five piece pop punk band we had another singer i was writing the songs for my first time playing guitar in a band, I always played drums growing up. That singer quit after we recorded our first EP before we ever released anything. And we tried out singers for a year. Nobody stuck. And the guys, the rest of the guys in the band basically just forced me to sing. And put out one EP, like a five-song EP that was pop punk. The second EP we did was half acoustic, half uh, full band. And we kind of just grinded as a local band for years. And legitimately, every label in the scene And management company every booking agent passed on us Um, we got some nice no's from people and a lot of you know non-returned emails as the industry goes but um we didn't get any attention at all until we decided to go fully acoustic and while we were in the studio making our first record clouded which we we did on our own independently epitaph hit us up literally on a, a facebook message which seemed like it wasn't even legit at the time, but <laughs> right over five years later, and we, we released three records with them. Uh, in fact, our last record was our last album on our contract with Epitaph, and we've just made kind of like a scary decision to go back to being an independent band and own our own masters and be able to steer our own ship, which, which honestly, to be fair, with Epitaph, uh, we always had complete creative direction. They signed us before they even heard our first album. They just liked what we were doing. Uh, Brett... At Epitaph is obviously a musician himself, and I think he re- he respects the people that he that he works with enough to let them let them make their own records, make their own art, you know. So we've never had any pushback with single choices, album artwork, titling, anything like that at all. You know, it's it's not like uh, the old major label machine of having somebody breathe down your neck while you're in the studio, or some guy showing up with a bag full of coke or something like that. You know, it's like. He was always really, really supportive. So, you know, we're moving on, but we've had, we have nothing but good things to say about about that label. And I grew up in Southern California, you know, and it's like, as a, you know, I grew up as a 90s kid. So that era of, of music that, that was on the radio, you know, bands like Offspring, Rancid, Bad Religion, that was so massive. And for us to sign to them was like... Not I, I say not even a dream come true because I didn't think that was possible. Right. Like I always looked at them as so much higher above anything that I could have hoped for. So it it was surreal. Like going and getting sandwiches with Brett and going over to his house for cookies and milk <laughs> around Christmas and stuff. It's just like it's like it's bizarre. You know, sometimes I talk to my other member Anthony, and I just like go, Do you think about like if I would have told you, you know, five years ago that we'd be sitting here making an album with Epitaph having you know having dinner over with with his wife and kids at the house like would you have believed me if I told you that was possible you know and it's it's cool to reflect on that kind of stuff
0: well I don't know him but he emailed me when I'm I made the I don't know if you saw it but I made a video about uh when they signed Lil Lotus uh and I made a video talking about kind of why I was so supportive of Epitaph signing those artists and he emailed me like the next morning and was like, Oh, I saw the video. It was great. If you're ever in LA, you should come, or if you're in LA, come to the Christmas party at Epitaph tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, Oh, uh, I wish I was.
1: Yeah. They throw a great Christmas parties. Like they get like a taco truck and rent out like a karaoke bar in LA. And it's, o- it's always a really fun time.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, the reason I was asking about that is because, I think people have a lot of, and and I want to talk about why you made the decision to go indie and all that because that's a whole other uh, topic I'd love to hear more about. But there's this idea that people have that labels are like these evil, like you know, like the Emperor Palpatine from behind the scenes, like manipulating the poor musicians into doing all these terrible things <laughs> they don't want to do and stealing all their money and all this. And it's, it's, I mean. I, that does happen that has happened but like people that work at labels work there because they love music and they love the artists they work with like nobody's gonna go work for a label for the money because there isn't any
1: <laughs> yeah i was gonna say from what i can tell there's not a whole lot of money on that side anyways maybe you know if you own own a record label maybe. that's different but if you're if you're an employee of a, of a label yeah i think those people are the majority of them are doing it for the right reasons and you know it's like I think the stereotype of like the slime ball and guy is I mean in my experience hasn't been something that I've ran into you know and we've worked with a handful of anar guys so
0: I've never again I'm sure this has happened but I have never personally heard anybody tell me like did the label forced them to do something with their music you know they may have suggestions or something like that but you know lots of times if a band puts out a record that people don't like, the fans say, oh, it's because the label made them do it. And well, first of all, good fucking luck getting a musician to do anything they don't want to do. Like It's just not going to fucking happen.
1: Now, in my experience, the, the musicians are always the ones that like, people always think like, oh, they signed to this label and they went all commercial and watered down their music and stuff. In my experience from every conversation I've had with other bands is it's always their decision to do it. They're not pushed to do it. I think everybody, especially scene bands, and we've been guilty of it at times too. We we feel like, what's the next move? What's the next yeah. move? Where, how do we get out? How do we break out? How do we like, you know, keep one foot in and put another foot right, in, uh, right. out into the mainstream world? How do we go alternative? How do we do this? Uh, you know, for metalcore bands, how do we go butt rock? How do we get on active rock festivals yeah. and active rock radio? And you know, I, I always just say like, I don't see a lot of examples of that working. You know, and and, and there's always going to be the exception to the rule. Sure. You're always gonna have some breakout band that is able to cross over. But I think everybody points to them and try to imitate it, but there's no formula for that stuff. And, and it's such a crapshoot, you know, because our band is kind of interesting in the way that like our music is essentially kind of mom rock. Yeah. But we exist in this, in this more like warp tour world or what used to be a warp tour world. Yeah. But you know, we we've thought at times like, well, why don't we have a shot at having, you know, an acoustic song at AC Radio? Why don't why don't we have a shot at this or that? And it's it's never been because the label has been pushing us to say, "Hey, we really need a song that sounds yeah. like uh, you know, perfect by Ed Sheeran from you guys." You know, it's like that's never in in an independent record label scene that's just not happening.
0: It's not how it works. Well, that said, it is interesting to me I mean, <laughs> you called it mom rock. I like, <laughs> I mean, you you have a very clear, like, sense of who you are and what the band sounds like. You know, you, you're self deprecating, but by the same token, you obviously take your music very seriously and you put a lot of love and care into it. How is the reaction to, I mean, everyone I've ever heard likes your music, but is there ever a time where people in the Warped Tour world are kind of like, what are you doing here?
1: No, I think, I think for the most part, it's like, we wouldn't exist in that world like i guess legitimately probably if we didn't have tattoos (laughs) you know it's like we probably wouldn't exist in this world maybe we would be opening up for ryan cabrera tours in 2020 or something like that but uh everybody's always been super open to us and you know we've we've done tours where you know we've played right before bear tooth we've done tours where we played right before turnstile uh and it's it's never been a problem you know and it's like you know we did a a tour with Newfound Glory years ago that was Turnover, Us, Turnstyle, and Newfound Glory. And it was like such a mixed bill. Yeah. And I always, as a, as a kid growing up, I always found that really refreshing when I went to shows. I remember a tour that was like Emery, Gatsby's American Dream, Gym Class Heroes, and As City's Burn. And I was like, what the hell is going yeah. on here? It like, feels like you're walking into different clubs throughout the night, but I always found it refreshing. So I think in general, a lot of bands like bringing out a band like us. A, because it's really simple to bring out two dudes that aren't going to take up a bunch of room or a bunch of the catering budget. And B, because, you know, it just brings variety to a show. And I think a lot of bands think about not only ticket sales, but they think about like, how do we deliver a cool, unique experience right. to our fans? And as a support band for us, that's uh for the most part been a benefit to us.
0: There's an interesting thing there, which is like that. I think a lot of artists, musicians, but you know, artists of any kind think that by playing it safe and doing the thing that everyone else is doing, that's what's going to get them traction. Well, let's let's just do the proven thing that we know works. We'll just copy that thing everyone else is doing. Play it safe, we don't want to rock the boat, but actually doing something radically different is the thing that is going to get you traction.
1: Yeah, it's I mean, we we've always like maintained the idea of it's better to stand out than to fall in line. So if we were to go out there and just do nothing but acoustic tours, we wouldn't right. stand out at all. Right. You know, and it's, so it's like when you see a band come on stage at a pop punk show or a screamo show that is like, what? Hold on. There's only two of them. Like, they're not just setting up. They're playing already, you yeah. know, and people are, are kind of caught off guard. And for us in the in like the live show experience, it's it's been really beneficial. You know, and I always kind of describe it like, usually when you go see a live band in a club, the sound is so shitty that you can't understand a single word the singer is saying. It's kind of just like, do you like the vibe of it? If you do check out the record, because there's no way you're going to walk away knowing really what happened after a live set. But with us, there's so little going on that we're able to communicate our songs in a way that other bands don't have the opportunity to live. So it's, it's, been beneficial.
0: You do have uh, some instrumentation in your arrangements that you're not going to be able to do with two people live. Uh, and I know, like in your bio, you you emphasize that you only wanted to do uh, instruments that you know you could physically play. What do you do with those arrangements live? Do you not play those songs? Do you use backing tracks? What do you do?
1: A combination. So it's you know we've always played to to backing tracks actually before. We did it before our first Warp Tour. We started playing with a backing track of just bass to fill out our choruses, uh, which in retrospect was a really great decision because when Attila's playing the next stage (laughs) over from you and you're just playing acoustic guitars, like you can't cover up their sound with the sound that you're making. Uh, And over the years, we've gotten more liberal with that. Like, oh, well, we have a string arrangement on this song and it's beautiful. Why wouldn't we use this? Or keys and stuff. And so now we've gotten to the point where we're like, we're not scared to to use a backing track live, you know, and it's like I, I think at the early stages of the band, I was like ashamed of it, you know, for, for certain things. But then it was like I would go and see a band like Twenty One Pilots and I go, what an incredible fucking experience. I do not care that there's two dudes up there and there's this wall of sound. I just don't care. It's like I want to see these guys perform these songs that they made. And so yeah, we we use backtracks for a lot of things. <laughs> this last tour cycle really is when we became the hot topic, Mumford and Sons. <laughs> we like had a whole busking setup where I'm playing kick drum live, and Anthony's playing, has like a floor tom with a beater hitting the bottom of it and a hi-hat, and he plays mandolin live, he plays electric guitar, you know, bass, keys. Like we really move around and do as much as we can. I feel to like I'm in an anthropology commercial. <laughs> Yeah, we do as much as we possibly can to like represent that sound. And like I said before that the guy who coined the term Hot Topic Mumford and Sons, he's toured with us off and on over over the years as like a third member playing keys, bass, vocals, whatever we need him to do. But now we have actually our our merch dude comes on stage and plays electric guitar on songs where Anthony plays drums. So, we do as much as we can, and then the rest of it is held up by uh the the good old MacBook Pro.
0: Right. So you mentioned something earlier that I thought was interesting about like having the one foot in, one foot out kind of thing where bands in the warp Tour scene are always kind of looking for what's that other opportunity. The grass is always greener and then making musical compromises to make that happen. But as you said, you don't really have to make any musical compromises for that to happen. Like you guys are culturally uh, like super in the warp Tour world, but musically you could be on mainstream radio tomorrow are you looking for that next thing? Or do you want to stay in the tour world? Or how do you think about that?
1: Genuinely, we think about it less and less, honestly. And radio has always been like a pipe dream for me. And, and we've everyone that we've ever talked to just says, focus on your art, focus on instead of trying to widen your audience, focus on trying to deepen your mm-hmm. audience. So like, How do you have a more resonating, more meaningful connection with the people that love what you do already? It's so much harder to engage a casual music listening audience like I would say like the people that come to this wildlife shows they are not casual fans you know it's like if if 300 or 500 people show up for this wildlife show or 100 people show up they all know the deep tracks you know like we just did a show in January where we played our first album and our newest album front to back and it's like you know playing a handful of songs that we've never played live before and I was just blown away I'm like these people know track eight from an album that came out, you know, five years ago. And they know track nine on a a fresh album from a band that's been out for over five years. Like, so we have this fan base that is really engaged. And and from what I've seen is they're not as much of a singles audience as they are. Like, they're listening to our full records, like our full records stream pretty well. So we don't really focus on radio and stuff anymore. And, I think playlisting, obviously, is kind of like where everybody's, you know, shifting their focus to these days because it's a little easier to attain. There's more room. You know, there's not a whole lot of room for new artists on radio, but there's a huge amount of room for new artists on playlisting. And the interesting thing is that we got a couple of years ago, we got like this massive acoustic playlist on Spotify and it got us a lot of plays and it didn't really generate a grassroots audience. You know, we were touring throughout that whole period. And I legitimately remember one instance in which somebody said specifically that they found us off this playlist. And it was the funniest fucking thing because I'm standing at the exit like schlepping CDs on a dashboard confessional tour after the show. And this woman walks up to me and she goes, oh, my gosh, I have to buy your CD. And she pulls out her phone. She goes, I have your song downloaded. And I didn't know that you guys were on this tour. And I didn't know who you were until you closed with that song. And I'm just and and I and I like kind of cracked up. I'm like, so it works, but it doesn't work because this woman has listened to our song a hundred times and had no fucking clue who we were, didn't follow us on social media to know we would even be on the tour, and then had clearly never even seen us because we're playing a whole set on stage. And she said, I didn't recognize you until the last song.
0: Yeah. I'm not surprised, though, because I mean, I listen to sometimes, you know, upbeat coffee shop vibes or whatever kind of playlist, and I like it. It's great, but I have no idea who any of those artists are or like, I don't know if you've seen that like joke tweet that goes around sometimes, you know, the scary thing about chain smokers is any two white guys could walk past you on the street <laughs> and it could be them and you'd never know.
1: I would know because I just went with my mom to a chain smokers concert last year. So I know who they are. (laughs) Well,
0: you might know. But the point is, I think that in your genre, more so than in, say, metalcore, there are those casual fans that might listen to a song a million times and have no idea who it's by and not care.
1: Yeah. We talk about that a lot, how some of our stuff is like kind of mood music. You know, it's like I've heard Explosions in the Sky maybe a thousand hours in my life. I don't know who the fuck those guys are. Yeah. You know, if they, you know, they could be the Chainsmokers. You know, I would have no, no clue. So there is an aspect of that to to softer music for sure. And I think early on, I was almost offended by that when people would say like, "Oh, I love to put on your music to fall asleep to." I'm like, "Our oh, shit is that boring, really?" You know, like. <laughs> but now I, I kind of I get it, you know, and and I utilize soft music for for relaxation and stuff too. So I, so I, I think it's really cool to like kind of serve that purpose in a way and we've made records that are really full but you know like the new record that we're making right now is that we're really focusing on making the most beautiful acoustic songs that we can we're trying to not go too crazy with arrangement Uh, we're not you know layering in huge bass synths and stuff to try to make a really full sound we're kind of trying to draw the listener in have it be more intimate so i I think we're, we're kind of leaning more into that these days than anything
0: yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Hey, you. Do you have any plans this year? <laughs> How's that going? Did you get 2020 Well, welcome to a brand new podcast called 2020
1: where myself, Benny Goodman, and my good friends, Corey Pazin and Siobhan Cronin from the band Lost Symphony also got 2020 And since the world ended this year, we decided why not just check in with some of our friends in the music industry and see how everyone's doing. We're going to get a candid look at life on and off the stage, as well as the mindset of some of the most successful people in the entertainment industry. New episodes drop every Sunday and wednesday at 9 p.m
0: eastern and you can listen at 2020-d.com soundtalentmedia.com or on your favorite podcast app ever wonder what a punch from elton john feels like or how you cope with having turned down the chance to be in nirvana or what signal keith richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room fans of too much effing perspective don't have to wonder because they've
1: heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman,
0: former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Fraites from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash ThePunkRockMBA. And thanks again to DistroKid for sponsoring this episode. One of the things you mentioned also was being a duo rather than a full band and how there's kind of some logistical and financial benefits to that. Can you kind of talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, the, the big obvious glaring one is obviously there's less money to be split between people. So financially, our band from an early stage was able to be full-time where a a lot of other bands wouldn't be able to be full-time. They'd have to work jobs at home intermittently, but you know, it's, it's ups and downs. So the downside of that is there's less people to delegate work to. So because of that, Anthony and I,
0: wait, that implies that all members of a band do (laughs) shit, you know, better than that.
1: I pride myself on being like the opposite of the the stereotypical singer who just like shows up with the SM57 in his back pocket to a show. I never want anybody to think that, you know, that that I've taken our opportunities for granted. So I'm like, I think it's something that I learned through kind of the Warped Tour ethic of like all hands on deck and everybody needs to, to hustle. And I just never want to be seen with nothing in my hands or like I'm just fucking along for the ride or something like I want to know I want to know for myself that I earned it and I want other people to see that and I don't care for like the recognition of it but like I think people need to see like not just the highlights people need to see that it's work and like we've never been the type to uh, try to glamorize what we do like fake that we're bigger than we are or anything like we fucking sleep in the van on tour still you know and could we afford not to Absolutely, but we choose to come home with more money so that we could have comfortable lives. Um, We're each married with dogs and houses. So we need to, you know, feed ourselves. And and we really, really have focused on being extremely self sufficient. So, you know, I am our tech, I am our lighting engineer. Uh, I do all of our stage production and run all of our sound live. And Anthony is our tour manager. We drive ourselves. We have one person that travels with us who is our merch dude. He kind of guitar texts for us in between songs. And like I said before, he'll come up and play a couple songs during our set. We've really shifted into this place of everybody needs to have multiple jobs because none of these things by themselves are really justifiable to have another mouth to feed or another ass in a seat of the van. So instead of being more comfortable on a tour, let's sleep less and and earn a little bit more and let's really invest in not only in in our knowledge but like just like the gear you know it's like we see other bands that go out there and rent things that they could be buying right. and in one tour they could have paid it off and then every tour after that you know would have been would have amounted to savings so it's like you know it's it's just i think a lot of bands some of them are lazy like what you're yeah. just mentioning and i think the other half of that is people want perception and like the whole idea of perception is reality if you look big and and i get that too and and i've always looked at it like
0: there's some truth to that
1: there is but the perception of your stage performance is different than the perception of being on a bus or the perception of having a big crew which your fans don't fucking know about you know if you have a 10 guy crew nobody knows
0: here's the move i'm going to tell you this anybody listening take notes Just get your own empty road case and just haul that around everywhere. So it looks like you're helping out, but you're not. (laughs) It's like, oh, yeah, I'll I'll, I'll be right back, guys. I just got to take this over there and then just keep walking around with your empty road case until everyone's finished loading in.
1: Is this how you snuck into shows when you're younger or what? (laughs) You just like invested in one road case instead of concert tickets? (laughs)
0: see and it pays it pays back in just a few shows
1: (laughs) it's not a bad bet
0: (laughs) but in all seriousness i i I really like the way you're talking about this because it's the same way that you think about like any small business which is what a band is like if you're opening a a mom and pop pizza shop you don't hire somebody to clean the tables because it makes you look like a baller you do it yourself because you don't you can't afford another person yeah do you know who dave weckl is by any chance the jazz guy yes so i remember reading uh one of his solo albums years ago he wrote a little like thing in the liner notes like well you might notice a few changes about this album one of which is that we no longer have a guitar player part of that is because it isn't part of the sound we envisioned but a large part of that is also due to the economic realities of touring as a five-piece and I was like, dude, if Dave Weckl <laughs> has to fire his fucking guitarist because he can't... I mean, Dave Weckl is a fucking legend. One of the most... Drummer, right? Yeah, one of the most famous like jazz drummers of all time. And if Dave Weckl has to fire his guitarist because he can't afford it, that tells you something.
1: Yeah. I don't know the ins and outs of the jazz industry, my place has been a, a little different than that. But
0: the point being is like mouths to feed is really what it is.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and I see bands now that like when they lose a member, they just go, we aren't not replacing that member, you know, because they, they start to see after years of being on the road, you know, like, for instance, State Champs, they just lost their guitarist and they're like, we're moving forward as a four piece.
0: Periphery replaced Nolly with a MacBook.
1: Yeah. And, it, and it's like less mouths to feed, but, you know, less ways to split any of the profits. You know, I always look at it like with with our band, you let's say on if we get paid $100 for a show, which has happened in the past, you got 15% away to your management, 10% away to your booking agent and 5% to your business management. So you have 30% right off the top. Right. So that $100 turns into 70 split it between however many fucking members you have in your metalcore band or your two-piece acoustic band, and then take 30% away. So I look at it, you know, it's like I'm really only making $30 per every, you know, 30% right. of of what we make as, as a two-piece band. Right. Turn that into a five-piece band, and my God, it's like I, I look at it and I go, how do these dudes survive?
0: And then you're paying taxes on that 30%.
1: Yeah, it's nuts. <laughs> <laughs> It's not the best business venture like if if you want to earn money picking up a guitar is not the fucking way to do it.
0: <laughs> no, it's not. However, I am inspired by people like Johnny Frank or Shinigami and lots of these other people who make a full-time living off of streaming. And you know, they're not getting rich, but they are paying the bills off of streaming versus a lot of bands who complain about streaming and there's a lot of reasons for that. One of which is that they've given up their publishing. The other is that they have five people to split it with. Yeah. And so when I look at kind of the model for the future, it looks a lot more like what you guys are doing. Like two hardworking people who actually bust their ass and contribute value as opposed to one or two people in a band that does everything and then three people that fucking sit around and don't do much other than maybe show up and play bass in the studio or more likely the guitarist tells him to go home and plays their parts for him <laughs>
1: <laughs> that reminds me of the uh the vandals dvd where the the bass player finds out, finds out that he's like when i would leave the studio after tracking my parts the guys would be like oh you mind leaving your bass so we can fuck around <laughs> he's like and i know that when i'd come back the next day there was different parts recorded than what i had
0: played. i mean if you have warren Fitzgerald in the band you should just have him play your shit
1: yeah let him do it
0: <laughs> yeah but my point is, like, if you want to make a living off of this shit, narrowing it down to one or two people who will really contribute a lot just makes financial sense. And I understand people maybe don't like the creative implications of that. And I guess to them, I would say, well, it's up to you. I mean, that's a trade off you need to make. Do you want to have an acoustic drummer in your band? Or are you okay with programmed drums? Either one is fine, but you have to understand there's a trade-off there between creatively what you want to do and another mouth to feed.
1: Yeah, for sure. It's, you know, I look at like bands like Beartooth where Caleb is the creative force of that band. And then he brings in and these guys to create what his vision in the live experience. And it's like, there are benefits to that. But like, you know, if it's done right, like those guys are all very well taken care of. They're all fucking super happy to be playing in that band. And Caleb is, not only a super talented dude, but he's just a really sweet, sweet person. Yep. And so they're happy to be to like to be that support role. For me, I've always been more of like a control freak. And it's a lot it would be much, much harder for me to just kind of show up and clock in that way. You know, but but people are just created differently. And and like in our band, Anthony, he doesn't care as much about artistic direction when it comes like to actual physical art, our music—he's very invested in. But like, he doesn't care what shirt designs I, what stupid shit I come up with. He doesn't care what you know I title the album.
0: Or maybe more accurate to say that he trusts you with it. Yeah, because he cares. Like he, if something shitty came out I'm sure he wouldn't be happy about it
1: he would be unhappy with it if he saw that we had a bunch of inventory in it and it didn't sell <laughs>
0: <laughs> right so he's trusting you with it
1: he's very business minded
0: don't fuck up our merch designs
1: yeah for sure it's about the delegation and and finding you know it's like I am just not a great numbers dude. I I am business minded to a degree, but I'm never ever going to get into the nitty-gritty of analytics, of right. inventory, any of that shit is just not going to be my thing. I'm not going to go over gas receipts and figure out ways to pinch pennies in that way. My thing is always, well, what kind of what kind of ways can we save? Like it's so much harder to just like increase your fan base, increase all of your income, but it, there are so many ways that you could cut down on costs, and that's always been my my place in in the businesses hey you know what i really think that we should on this on this first headline tour we should come out straight away with production let me spend a thousand bucks on lights and figure out how to do this and and so that we can have production in these small clubs where bands normally don't have it and i go it's a thousand bucks i know right now that doesn't sound like a great idea but people are spending so much money every single tour doing this stuff and We still own, you know, five years later, we've invested a lot more in production over the years, but we still own some of those lights that we bought on the very first tour. And some of them we've upgraded or they've broken or whatever. But we continue to utilize things that we bought for tours four years ago and today's shows.
0: Hopefully they're fully depreciated on your taxes.
1: (laughs) That's another one where I don't know shit about
0: that. You can write off the depreciation of all that shit that you bought every year.
1: Really early on we took on a business manager, uh I- even though you know a lot of bands that that are smaller don't even bother, but we just heard horror stories about bands that didn't pay taxes for years and then, you know, 3 years later after touring full time and having a big single out and and having all this income that they just spent every dollar they had having fun and oh, you know, IRS knocks on the door and you owe $250,000. So now your next entire year and a half of of work is for fucking nothing. Yeah. (laughs) Just to get even.
0: Dude, if anybody listening to this, do not fuck around with your taxes. Pay someone to do them for you. It is worth it. That person will save you more money than whatever you're paying them. And most importantly, you're going to be a lot less likely to end up in the fucking crosshairs of the IRS, which is not fucking fun.
1: Yeah, they're they're good people that we talk with them on a weekly basis about bills that are coming in everything and and like the coolest part about it is that they if we're owed money we don't have to hunt people down you know and that happens a lot in the music industry where you're owed things a lot of times we owe other people and they're hunting us down for merch debt or whatever but they go after these people and make sure that we're paid every last dollar and and it's that that pays for itself to me
0: so with all of that being said I mean you guys clearly understand the value of bringing together a team you understand delegation and all that stuff why did you choose to go independent and i don't want to say cut the label out because that sounds you know negative and i don't mean it that way but You've chosen to part ways with that part of your team what was that all about
1: like i said earlier we had a three album deal with epitaph and our last record fulfilled that last record on the contract and moving forward they they sent us a re-up offer said hey do you want to do one more with us you know and gave us the full budget of the last record we've recouped all three of our records over the years and we've performed well and in their system
0: what does that mean for anybody who doesn't know recouping
1: your label gives you a budget to make a record recouping just means that that album has been paid off so that debt that you took on uh for that record budget or advance or whatever usually you get like a full budget and if you don't spend all that money to make the record you get the rest of it in cash so we have paid off all of those those records through album sales and streaming
0: which means then you start making royalties on them
1: yeah, you do receive royalties like a small mechanical royalty for all records sold even prior to that record being paid off or recoup. But uh, yeah, after that, then you start actually seeing checks that are significant rather than, you know, the the classic like ASCAP 12% <laughs> check or something like that. Yeah, it was just a decision where we said, well, we have performed well on their system, but what do we see that a label has done for us that we can't do on our own? And, th- and there are bands that I think probably need that more than more than others mm-hmm. but we look at it and we said well our first record we spent 10 grand on it our own to make it and it performed really well it's ended up sounding really good we got a, a good guy to mix it and our second record we i think we tripled that budget we spent like 30 grand on it. our last record we spent a hundred thousand dollars on it we went to
0: dude that is a monster budget these days
1: yeah we you know we went to a grammy award-winning producer this guy named ryan hadlock Okay, you're you're in Washington, so he's yeah. up there. Do You know Bear Creek Studios. Yeah,
0: yeah, we live right by there, actually.
1: Yeah, so we just made our record there, uh, Petaluma, a couple of years ago, and you know he, we went to him because he did like the Vance Joy record, he did the Lumineers record. We're like, let's go to an acoustic guy, yeah. you know. And it's like we, <laughs> and to be fair, we didn't even know who the fuck he was. We don't really listen to a whole lot of that stuff, but when we did, we were like, holy shit, listen to these records this guy's making. Like these, are, there's something special going on here. And we we're like, we didn't think we'd be able to get him. And Epitaph helped us. And they said, yeah, we'll fork over the money to put you guys in there with somebody special like that. Let's do it.
0: For comparison, there's like plenty of like bands on, say, Rise or Century Media or something doing records for 10 grand. So yeah, to spend 100 on an acoustic album is a crazy huge budget.
1: Yeah. I mean, we went in there and we brought in, I think we ended up having like five different additional players on it, you know, horn players, keys, stand up bass full strings like the whole nine you know we like we really really went deep with it and it was scary for us because i have always heard horror stories of like the band that goes and records with rick rubin but they're really just working with his you know his assistant and he never shows up and doesn't care and so i thought well we're not a big band this guy's you know fucking making luminaires records he's not gonna give a shit about us and i couldn't have been more wrong he showed up every single day and was so focused and like that dude just loves his job and he's really good at what he does so we ended up having this great experience the record turned out awesome and we look back at it and we go holy shit we learned so much being a part of that process that we liked and we've we've had other processes where we learned what we didn't like and what we did like as well and with all of that experience this whole time i have been a sponge and and i just like I have watched what they do. I've seen the gear that they use to to find a good a great sound for my acoustic guitar, for my vocal, and I've always always demoed stuff from you know ten years ago. I bought my first Pro Tools rig, and now I've become far more proficient at recording. and And what we do is, I don't need a gigantic uh, space to record drums. I don't right. need you know, 30 channels to, you know, and a million microphones to capture a fucking Terry Basio drum kit or something. Yeah. I can do what I need to do in a bedroom. And that was a big part of us saying, well, do we need to spend $100,000 on the next record for it to be a beautiful record that really speaks? And the answer was no. We just said, well, we didn't spend that much on the first record and we love that record. Yep. So we love the third record, but we spent 10 times as much on it legitimately and you know and then more more than that on the end of marketing it and creating music videos and all these things so we just looked at do we need to take a budget from a label to make a record these days and the answer is no you know we invested in our own gear to record at our homes anthony lives in utah i live here in phoenix and we just email song ideas back and forth constantly
0: this is the model to me is like just 100% self-contained DIY thing. You outsource the parts you need to. For example, your business manager, you're not going to do your taxes yourself. But the creative part, you can do that all yourself, especially for your kind of music. There's no reason. I mean, I'm sure that Ryan Hadlock did an amazing job. But to your point, do you need to spend 100 grand? Probably not. And there's no reason why anybody in you know 2020 can't record their music at home to the level that it sounds as good as anything on any album that you've heard. There's absolutely no reason, you know, especially if you get
1: yeah, agreed. And we always just say, fix it when you mix it. You know, it's like I know that the sounds that I'm going to get going into the computer, capturing my acoustic guitar, are not going to be as good as what Ryan Hadlock does sure. with hundreds of thousand dollars of vintage gear and his ears and his knowledge. And but what I know is that when we send our record off to be mixed, that that guy's going to be able to fix some of the fuck-ups that I did on the way in, you know? And it's like, I, I'm really <laughs> well, only...
0: I was going to say the opposite. I was going to say practice so that it sounds good on the way in, but that works too.
1: Well, yeah, that that's that's definitely part of it, you know? And, and, and that's something that we've been really honing our skills on in, in this last year. Just in the demoing process alone is where we've just said, let's take this more seriously. Let's see how much better we can get at this uh, at capturing what we do. And, you know, it's like, I'll be on FaceTime with Anthony telling him like, oh, try this positioning with with your new condenser mic to, yeah. to capture your acoustic guitar, make it brighter and this and that. And that all of that stuff is super important. And, and I, I see a lot of people uh, in the industry that when they are around people with knowledge that they don't, they they just look at it like, oh, he's got it, he's got it. And they don't pay attention. Yeah. And that's what I talked about earlier being that sponge is that, I am constantly in this industry surrounded by people that have been doing what they've done for decades, being around people that are super fucking talented, and I am just a curious motherfucker. I never stop asking questions. Uh, When we go, we produce our own music videos now, and we, through YouTube, if you have enough subscribers, you get access to what's called the YouTube space in LA or New York, where Mm -hmm. they have these huge sound studios and you have access to rent for free all of this insane fucking camera gear. Uh, you know, I'm like holding a shoulder cam with like $150,000 worth of shit on my shoulder. I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. (laughs) I'm just asking questions. Where's the record button? When I find somebody that works there that knows what they're doing, bro, I couldn't like attach the fucking, (laughs) the camera to the mount. I had to YouTube how to do it while I was at YouTube (laughs) to figure out how to hook up a Sony RED cam.
0: But you did it. That's the important part.
1: But we fucking did it, you know? And at the end of it, you look at the video, you go, holy shit, it looks like somebody knew kind of knew what they were fucking doing. We did it, you know, and it's like
0: because you had the willingness to just jump in and go, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing, but here we go. I'm going to figure it out.
1: That's the, the one thing It's like, I know this wild isn't the greatest fucking band in the world, but we have always been fearless when it comes to like taking on opportunities, not being scared to get our hands dirty or to try things that other people haven't done. Uh, we're never too cool to go sell our own CDs or be part of every little detail of the process. Like we really, really try and understand our business as a whole and everything that we can do to take the load ourselves so that we can profit more off of it. And at the end of everything, like when I look back at like a live video of us playing, like I have so much more gratification knowing that like we did that our fucking selves. And like like, I'm sitting there watching lighting cues on the thing, not even paying attention to what I was singing Mm -hmm. because I'm so like invested in everything that we're doing and the gratification of all of that is just amplified because of how deep we've gotten into everything that we do.
0: Well that sounds like a great place to end it to me. I love that. Like that is exactly the way that I think every creator should think about whatever it is that they do. Like you just you have to care about all of it and you have to put everything you've got into all of it and take ownership of it. That's the model. Like you everyone has the tools to do it. So that is what I would suggest anybody takes away from this, if you're listening. Any words of wisdom or stuff you want to plug or anything before I let you go?
1: Words of wisdom, I'd say, like, like I said before, be a sponge when you're around people that are talented and knowledgeable, if they're willing to, I mean, don't be a complete pain in the ass, but be as much of a pain in the ass as you can you know, <laughs> yes. in circumstances. And uh, I guess this year, yeah, we're making our, our fourth full-length record. It's going to be coming out later this year. And you know, I hope people check it out.
0: Cool. Well, thanks again for doing this and uh, definitely let me know next time you find yourselves in Seattle.
1: Cool. Thanks, Ben.
0: All right, my friends, that does it for this episode of the podcast. If you made it this far, thank you. Thank you for listening. We sincerely appreciate each and every one of you. If you want to help the show, there's a couple things that you can do. First of all, share it on social media. If you share it, tag us, tag Finn McKenty. That's me. And tag Deanna Chapman. That's a producer